Hello and welcome to the One Football Women's Podcast. We like to globetrot a little on the One Football Women's Podcast, and this week we'll be joined from Samantha Lewis down under to chat about the Asian Cup. That means there isn't enough time to talk in too much depth and we don't have a guest for the WSL action from the weekend. Obviously, I would like to just run through the quick headlines from the weekend. Stina Blackstenius scored her first Arsenal goal to rescue a point after Katie McCabe was sent off against Manchester United. Chelsea took advantage and beat Manchester City through a Gura Wrighton goal. The gap at the top is now just two points and the Blues have a game in hand on the Gunners. Tottenham scored more than twice in a game for the first time all season. More on that in a few moments with Sam. They scored four against Brighton and are just a point behind Manchester United in third now. And up to fifth, we have Reading. It's five wins in a row for the Royals now. They have come against teams in the bottom reaches of the table, but they've managed to squeeze themselves between Tottenham and Manchester City in the league and... With harder fixtures coming up, they'll fancy their chances of staying there. Right, that is, unfortunately, it on the WSL for this week. We will have more next week after Arsenal have played Chelsea. For now, though, we want to dig into Australian football and the Asian Cup after the Matildas, who host the World Cup in just 18 months, surprisingly lost at the quarterfinal stage. I'm now delighted to welcome this week's guest, Samantha Lewis, women's football writer for the ABC on Australia, to chat the Asian Cup. Sam, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for inviting me. I'm excited and also kind of terrified to uh, delve into the current problems that the Matildas have got. <laughs> okay, so we'll step in with something only semi-related to the Matildas first. Kaya Simon scored twice at the weekend for Tottenham. We've talked on the podcast before about, obviously we talk a lot about the WSL, and we've talked about Tottenham's problems, scoring goals. They never seem to have many problems keeping a clean sheet or being tight at the back. Scoring goals is an issue. She's not played much since she joined in the summer, but two goals at the weekend. Do you think she can help solve that for them? I do. Yeah, I do. I think perhaps part of the the energy that Kaya Simon brought to that game uh, was maybe in the wake of the Asian Cup uh, exit at the quarterfinal. Kaya Simon uh, really struggled to find the back of the net here, um, well, in India during the tournament. And it's not because she's not a great player, because obviously Tottenham are reaping the rewards of that recently. Uh, it's that maybe she hasn't really been utilised in, in the way that she's best. And I think that's that's really where Tottenham uh, have done, I think, fairly well uh, in the last couple of weeks slash months is they are really starting to understand what Kai Simon can offer going forward. She's very dynamic. She's very motivated. You can see that she, whenever she's on the ball, she wants to do something. And that seems like something Tottenham have really struggled with. They've struggled to sort of have that really dynamic line-breaking kind of player, particularly a player who is as flexible and as versatile as Akai Simon, who can play in wide positions, who can play as a centre forward, and who can even sometimes play as a creative attacking midfielder in a number 10 role. She can sort of do a lot, and she's very, very experienced as well. She's one of the most experienced Matildas that are currently on the roster. Uh, and I think she she brings a lot of that um, prior knowledge and a lot of that versatility 
Um, and a lot of that drive that uh, she has sort of shown throughout the course of her career and she's now sort of brought it to this Tottenham side, which and it is obviously displaying that, uh, that drive in ways that are really complementing what the rest of the, the team are wanting to do. So, yeah, I think if they continue to trust her, if they continue to give her the freedom to move in the way that she moves best, which is not necessarily locked into a single position doing repetitive moves over and over again, but allowing her to improvise, allowing her to be creative, allowing her to take on players, allowing her to combine in different ways with different teammates. Uh, I think that's the probably the best way to continue to utilise her and hopefully she'll continue to find the back of the net for them as well. And she found the back of the net twice against um, against Indonesia as well, over in the Asian Cup for Australia in the 18-0 yeah. win. Just on that game quickly, and I think there are other games that are maybe more interesting to talk about, but on that quickly, how did it go down down under that Sam Kerr beat Tim Cahill's international record? It was a really interesting one. Uh, I mean, <laughs> practically every Matilda scored against Indonesia. <laughs> like an 18-0 scoreline is, is pretty incredible. It was the third highest score that the Matildas have uh, ever notched against an international side. Uh, and it's the highest score ever in an Asian women's tournament as well. Like it was pretty historic in in that sense, but it was really historic for the Matildas and for Australian women's football because, as you said, Sam Kerr broke Tim Cahill's all-time leading goal-scoring record, and uh, it's uh, she did it even in even fewer games than what he did as well. I think she beat him to the record by three or four games, so it's even more impressive in that statistical sense. But also just taking into account the fact that. Sam Kerr wasn't a fully professional footballer until she joined Chelsea. You know, she didn't actually have all of the structural benefits that Tim Cahill had as a pro. Uh, She didn't have the youth pathway in terms of national teams. She didn't have the same uh, opportunities in terms of competition. She didn't have the consistency of club football. She was jumping back and forth between Australia and the United States for a really long time before securing that move to the WSL. So when you take all of those kinds of factors into consideration, it's an even more extraordinary stat, I think, to have reached 50 goals as soon as she did, considering all the extra hurdles she's had to overcome to be who she is. And yet the discourse here in Australia was such that, particularly on the men's game side of things, people don't like you erasing the legends. They don't like women uh, asserting themselves and showing in various statistical categories that they are better. And it's sometimes fun to poke the bear. For me, I I definitely said uh, once or twice on Twitter that Sam Kerr is now officially and statistically the GOAT because according to this particular statistic, she is, because one number is bigger than another number. And that really riled up some people. There were lots of men who were in my mentions saying, oh, you can't, you know, you can't you can't assess them based on that. There are so many different factors and blah, blah, blah. And Tim Cahill is still the best and whatever. But... Yeah, as, as if you didn't know that there were lots of factors involved for, for both of them. <laughs> right, exactly. And they say it as though we're going to forget that Tim Cahill exists. <laughs> fabulous and he's still the all-time leading goal scorer for the Socceroos it doesn't you know Sam Kerr's achievement doesn't uh, minimize what Tim Cahill achieved if anything it, it sort of shows how much better the game is getting and the fact that Australian football when it comes to its development and its potential 
it's moving into the women's side of the game, which is something that I think is worth celebrating regardless of where you sit on the Tim Cahill versus Sam Kerr goat conversation. So yeah, it was, it was, it was widely celebrated, but there were some people within the game who, who were still a little bit miffed that it was a woman who broke the record and not a man. Firstly, congratulations to Sam Kerr for that. But things didn't really take off for Australia after an 18-0 win against the Philippines. They toiled to, or through the first half at least, before breaking the deadlock. Then they barely beat Thailand, albeit with a much-changed side at the end of the group stage. Then there came the real test against South Korea. Ji Soo-yeon scored the only goal late on. Sam, Australia were probably lucky to lose, but does that erase any of the disappointment? No, it doesn't. And I mean, the, the South Korea game was an interesting one because the, from the chances that were created, we absolutely should have won. Sam Kerr in particular had probably three or four open chances on goal that any other day she puts in the back of the net. But this was just one of those days. It was just a game where the ball didn't want to go in the goal. And ultimately the Matildas, uh, they, they suffered the consequences of that. It was a matter of one nation's star player in Ji Soo-yoon standing up and taking her opportunity when it was presented to her and another nation's star player, Sam Kerr, not doing that. Um, and the, the fallout from the, the quarterfinal knockout, which is the earliest the Matildas have ever been knocked out of an Asian Cup, has been quite significant um, because this tournament, it's it's sort of acted as a, a really um, really interesting microcosm in lots of ways. So one of the big issues the Matildas have had over the past decade has been that they have often struggled against nations that are higher ranked than them and nations that tend to play a much more technical kind of style of football than what they do. But what's different about this past 12 months and uh, as opposed to the past 10 years, is that the past 10 years, the Matildas have often had these big wins against smaller nations to sort of pad out their stats and to cover over the cracks. And we sort of saw all of that happen in the space of three or four games in this Asian Cup where we had that huge win over Indonesia. We had... A, you know, a sort of a, a, a more hesitant win over the Philippines and then again against Thailand in the, in the third group stage game. But within all of that were still these deeper issues that Australia have always struggled with. And those issues really came to the fore in that quarterfinal against South Korea because South Korea was the more refined, the more experienced, the more organised the better resourced version of the three nations that we played in the group stage. So while we had those big wins against small nations, once we were faced with a, a, a greater opponent and a, a more um, a more mature opponent in the South Korea side, we reverted back to a lot of the mistakes that have often plagued the Matildas in the past. Uh, one of the images that sticks out to me is that the nature in which we conceded against South Korea was almost exactly the same as how we conceded against Japan in the 2018 Asian Cup final. It was a, a, a cracking goal in the final five minutes of the game. The Matildas' defence had 
sort of parted like the Red Sea and created this space for this sensational strike to occur. But what was different, I suppose, about this moment and about uh, particularly off the back of the year that the Matildas have had, where it's been loss after loss after loss after loss against big nations, is that we we weren't really able to, um, I suppose, distract from the seriousness of some of those issues. Uh, we didn't have those bigger wins over the past 12 months that over smaller nations that were used sort of in the past to say that the Matildas are still doing well. And I think the other big problem that we're having at the moment, well, it's, a, it's sort of the two sides of a coin. So on the one hand, the Matildas are more visible than ever, which is fabulous. Uh, you know, women's national game, women, national team games and our, our domestic league here, the A-League Women's, are now on free-to-air television for the first time. All games are broadcast live and free around the country. But that, of course, brings increased scrutiny and increased uh, criticism when things don't mm -hmm. go wrong. And coupled with the fact that we're hosting the Women's World Cup next year, all of the attention is so much, it's so heightened and it's, it's really, um, I think, showing or exposing now the gap between what we expect the Matildas can do and what they're actually showing that they can do. And that gap seems really, really wide at the moment. It's always sort of been wide, but now this past year, and particularly this Asian Cup, has, has really shone the spotlight on exactly how wide that gap is. And I think that's the reason why there has been such a huge reaction um, from people here in Australia, why the fallout has been so... Uh, massive and and so um, sort of all-encompassing, coupled with the fact that the Socceroos, our men's national team, are also not very good. So it's sort of forced Australian football into a bit of a moment of reckoning with itself where we're having to really question what it is that's been bubbling beneath the surface. What are these deeper fractures that are now manifesting in these national team performances and how quickly can we solve them? Because ultimately the biggest stage of all is 18 months away at the Women's World Cup. And if we perform the way that we performed in the Asian Cup on the world stage, then a lot of people are going to be pretty disappointed. Well, on that, it, it's just 18 months to the World Cup. In Australia, there's always that extra pressure, or Australia and New Zealand, there's always that extra pressure as the host nation. Where do Australia stand then right now? Is 18 months enough time to make sure that that's still a really successful World Cup? Was this maybe the right time for a bit of a wake-up call? Is there ever a right time for a wake-up call? <laughs> I don't know. Um, but look, what I will say is that I'm glad it's happened now and it's not happening at the round of 16 next year. Exactly. I'm glad that we, we've got this time now to really nail down what went wrong at the Asian Cup and do as much as we can, as fast as we can, to fix those errors in time to perform well on the international stage next year. Um, and I think another, another big thing that's worth mentioning as well is that Tony Gustafson, who is our head coach, uh, he was brought in, he started his tenure at the start of last year, 2020, and he had two sort of main mandates to his job. The first was to try and win tournaments. And the second was to have a longer term plan 
to develop younger and fringe and emerging Australian players to try and address the really shallow pool that we currently have to draw from at the senior national team level. So uh, Football Australia, our national governing body, they did a, a study uh, a couple of years ago called the Women's Performance Gap Report. And it, it benchmarked Australia against other um, competing nations around the world, including England, including Germany, the Netherlands, the USA, Spain. And it found that in various kinds of categories, Australia have the smallest uh, senior national team pool of players. They are over-reliant on a core group who have a vast number of international caps compared to the next group of players emerging through the ranks. And we also have one of the most underdeveloped youth national team programs in the women's space of any of the competing nations as well. So Tony's one of Tony Gustafson's mandates is to try and accelerate the development of a new, uh, I guess, a, a new generation of players to try and miraculously find this undiscovered and untapped group of players and to try and bring them through as quickly as possible so that the drop off once our current generation of Matildas has retired, is not as massive as it could potentially be. And so the Asian Cup was a sort of a collision of those two mandates of trying to win a tournament while also trying to bring through a number of young players who don't have a lot of international experience. And so we saw that, for example, in the game against the Philippines and we saw it in the game against Thailand where there was a number of roster changes. There are a number of young players who were brought on who started the game, uh, who were brought on as substitutes. Um, and this core group that have become that Australia have become over reliant on your Sam Kerr's, your Alana Kennedys, your Claire Polkinghorns, um, they they took a bit of a backseat. But what we ended up discovering, and what has been made much clearer from this Asian Cup, is that this historical reliance on this core group of players is so extreme now that they are still required to come in and change games. And we saw that in the Philippines game. We saw that in the Thailand game where it was it was Sam Kerr, it was Emily Van Egmond, really experienced players who had to basically take the game by the scruff of the neck and, and get a result from it because the players that were there weren't able to do so. And that's really concerning because, uh, and again, as we saw in the South Korea game, the over-reliance on a handful of key players can be really dangerous if you don't have a plan B. If, you know, Sam Kerr, yes, she's one of the best goal scorers in the world. She's in the form of her life. But if she just has one of those games where the ball just doesn't want to go in the back of the net, what else can we do? What are our alternatives? And that's, I think, the big question for Gustafsson going forward. And it's the big question for the Matildas program going forward as well, because Sam Kerr, as much as we would like her to, is not going to be around forever. We have to be able to backfill. We have to be able to find this new generation of players and to try and bring them through as quickly as we can so that we don't fall off a cliff, basically. And and you're right, the, the challenge to balance those two objectives if you like to be competitive now but to set up a team to be more competitive as time goes on balancing those two is is tricky especially when you have the pressure of hosting a world cup just around the corner absolutely and it's to the point i think with the australian dynamic where those two mandates are almost sometimes mutually exclusive like you can't actually do both at the same time mm -hmm. and i think maybe this asian cup was a good demonstration of that you can try and bring through you know five or six young emerging fringe players 
but you're going to have to compromise on the quality of your overall play. You're going to have to compromise on results. And that is ultimately what we have found. Um, originally, the Asian Cup was not meant to be a tournament we were setting out to win. It was meant to be a tournament used to develop these players. It was meant to be the step towards the Women's World Cup next year. That's the ultimate goal for us. But somewhere along the road, the message changed and Football Australia were like, oh, no, we do want to win it. And so Gustafsson, he was in a really tricky position then because he had been preparing over the course of the most recent friendlies against the USA, against Brazil, to bring in all of these younger players, to give them major tournament experience and to see what how they would react to the pressure cooker scenario of something like an Asian Cup. And yet all of a sudden he was forced to pivot at the last minute and field this really strong team, as strong as he could, to try and achieve this ultimate goal of winning the Asian Cup at the same time. And so what, what ended up happening was that in trying to do both of those things, the Matildas ended up doing neither. And that's, I think, the, the, the most difficult thing for fans here to really grapple with is that now we're realising actually the depth of the problems that have been plaguing the Matildas for a while, but that this current golden generation have been able to sort of paper over by based on their their own individual qualities based on the luck of the timing as well um yeah 2017 for example when the Matildas won the tournament of nations we recorded our first win over the USA we absolutely demolished Japan and Brazil to win that trophy but those were nations in the midst of rebuilds they were nations going through their own uh their own moments and and bringing through new generations of players as well but for some reason, the Australian public has just been coasting on on that year, on that dominance that Australia showed at that time when we were peaking while everyone else was troughing, uh, and that's sort of the that's a, that's a lot of the context and a lot of the nuance that um, Australian football media tends to miss when we discuss things like this, uh, which is really unfortunate because, you know, you need to in order to it, to form, you know. I think good and productive and useful opinions, you need to be well informed. You need to have a, a good understanding of the history, of the context and of the various layers that this team and this head coach are trying to operate in. Um, and so it's really hard to be able to capture all of that in a tweet and or in an article <laughs> or in a single radio interview that goes for five minutes, you know, like it's it's a it's a really long conversation that we haven't been having at the sort of the national level for a really long time. And so my hope is that this Asian Cup is going to try and kickstart that, that this failure because it has really exposed the gulf between our expectations of the Matildas and what they are actually delivering in reality, that gulf is going to spur us to really start to figure out why. And hopefully we're going to, it's going to reach a critical mass point where there are too many people talking about it and it's too obvious that we can't just continue going down the same road. With the World Cup around the corner, though, it's not the perfect time to rip things up and start all over again. Would you <laughs> have been more interested in an Australia team at this Asian Cup Compared to the one we saw, would you have been more interested in maybe one that didn't really use Sam Kerr or Caitlin Ford or Alana Kennedy? Yes, absolutely. I think that this Asian Cup was a missed opportunity to really test the depth of the player pool that we have here in Australia. Um, and 
uh, it's an interesting conversation though, isn't it? Because it's all about what what you personally think this tournament should have been for. What purpose did it serve? So I'm, because I understand the, I guess, the depth of the problems, particularly from a youth perspective, I saw this Asian Cup as an opportunity to, to bring through, to really accelerate the development of these younger players. Our youth national team program has been dormant for three years. Our young Matildas and junior Matildas haven't played a game since 2019. And when they did play games, they played roughly a quarter the number of the kinds of nations we're going to be competing against at World Cup level. Mm-hmm. So it's we can sort of see the train hurtling towards us from the tunnel, uh, from the end of the tunnel down there. But we're, we're not really prepared for it just yet, I don't think. And the Matildas, the current generation we've got, the senior squad, these core players who we've become over-reliant on. It's, again, it's a consequence, I suppose, of timing in that these players have been so good, uh, but it's not because of the structures that they have emerged from. It's largely despite them, that particularly in Australia, the, you know, our A-League women's competition is basically a glorified tournament. Like it's, it's 14 rounds long. It has the second longest off-season in the entire world and it has the fewest teams. Like there, there's just not enough football played here to justify the senior national team having reached the heights that they've reached. And I think that these larger, longer term historical structural problems are now starting to rear their head. The current senior Matildas are really the last, uh, the last band-aid that we've got left. They've they've managed to somehow succeed despite being held back in so many ways in an Australian football context. And now we've got players like Kerr, like Kennedy, like Ford, they're all playing for these huge clubs overseas, some of them more regularly than others. You know, Caitlin Ford, I didn't think, had a very good Asian Cup tournament, and that's perhaps due to the fact that she's not really playing that much at Arsenal. Um, but this is all we've got. And so it's it's really, it's tough, you know, because when you're entering into major international or confederation tournaments like this and you want to win it, who else do you have to draw on? Even if the players at an Arsenal aren't in form, even if they aren't playing, they still have huge amounts of international experience. So, of course, you're going to bring them in when you don't really have anyone comparable. So it's a really tricky, really tangled uh, kind of spot that Gustafsson finds himself in. Um, but I would like to think now off the back of this Asian Cup that the next at least six months is going to be a high acceleration of fringe players um, that the current senior crop are going to be given some time away from Matilda's camp because we know what they can do. We've seen them do it a bunch of times. They don't need to come, particularly not back to Australia, with all the travel and all right, the that, exhaustion that comes with that. That's the other thing. Every time there's an international break, Sam Kerr and Caitlin Ford, Steph Catley have to travel halfway across the world and back in the space of a few weeks just to play a couple of games that, as you say, don't really teach anyone anything exactly that's exactly right so maybe the way forward for football australia is that we have maybe two kinds of matildas camps maybe we set up friendlies against major european nations in europe and we have camps based here in australia where we Mm -hmm. have just australian-based emerging fringe and youth matildas players who are finally given an opportunity at the top level against maybe competing Asian or Oceania nations, you know, a little bit lower down the pecking order, 
but it's still going to be worth something and we're going to be able to do two in one in some ways. Um, but the other thing as well is that like this, this current crop of Matildas, these senior players, this, this core group, they're not just exhausted physically from the huge amount of travel, the increased demands of professionalism, but they're, I think they're really struggling with these expectations as well of the Australian public, expectations that are not particularly well-informed, expectations that were created in the halo of that 2017 year, that miraculous year, which was quite anomalous. It was really different compared to the, the actual trend of the Matildas outside of that. And they're, you know, they, they know that the spotlight is on them. And, you know, I, I, I'm not a sports psychologist. I can't speak to the kinds of methods or mechanisms that are in place to help them in that respect. But it's, I can imagine it's really, really hard. And after a moment like this Asian Cup where you have, uh, you've, you've finished two games sooner than what you thought you would, when everyone, for all intents and purposes, thought you were going to win the damn thing, that must take a really big toll on these players. Like, and particularly given the discourse that has now emerged where it's, it's quite vicious. There's a lot of um, preconceived notions about the Matildas and about women in sport that are sort of being hashed out. Lots of uh, different agendas from past uh, situations with past coaches. Like it's all incredibly messy. And I don't blame the senior players at all for maybe wanting to take a step back from a couple months if it's what they need to do in order to want to play for Australia because at the moment it's it's looking like a pretty hard ask. So going back to the World Cup quickly and then maybe zooming out a little bit on Asian football, we had reaching the semifinals, we had uh, the Philippines and Japan who were knocked out in the semifinals, which means they will be at the World Cup because yeah. they've got that far Vietnam as well because they won in the playoffs after being after losing their quarterfinal then we had South Korea and China in the final China have dominate historically dominated the region Japan in recent times have taken that mantle a little bit South Korea have have been with Australia one of the emerging or the emerging nation but China won again their their ninth Asian Cup. It it sort of tends to be them and Japan that dominate the region. Do you think South Korea and Australia are there with them now, or do you think there's still work to be done to be at that same level? Yeah, it's a good question, and I think China and Japan form a really interesting lens through which to look at the Matildas currently. China, as you mentioned, like they're, they're the most successful women's national team in Asia by quite a long way. This is their ninth title. But it's the first time that they have actually reached the final for, I think, 14 years. And China in the 90s were exceptional. They were one of the best teams on the planet. They reached the Women's World Cup final against the USA in 99. They had one of the two players of the century in Sun Wen. They were a force to be reckoned with. But what happened with China was that they didn't plan ahead. They didn't figure out what to do after their golden generation retired. And that's the moment that Australian football finds itself in. We are trying to come up with a succession plan really, really quickly because we only just realised in the last couple of years that we don't actually have one. But what China has done, I think, and this is the, this Asian Cup 
uh, when I think is the first evidence of this working is that uh, a number of years ago, they developed a 50 year plan for football. It included women's and men's and it was their entire nation's vision to become a leading football superpower in the world. And this, I think Asian Cup win is the first sort of manifestation of what that commitment and all the increased funding, the increased camps, the increased player pool, what all of that can look like. Um, one of the things that I really loved was the the head coach that China brought in. Um, she is the first woman to ever coach China and she is a former national team player from that golden generation. So they've not just leaned into it on the player side of things, but they also seem to be leading into it, leaning into it on the coaching and uh, technical development side of things as well. And Japan, uh, I think, a uh, further along sort of process to China in that they had their golden generation that won the 2011 Women's World Cup, but they they didn't plan as well to uh, about what was going to happen after that, that generation retired. But now this Asian Cup, uh, it, it showed the, the, the sort of the beginnings, the, the, the shoots of that succession plan. Their head coach was hired from the youth national team level where he coached a number of the young Natashiko players to um, some really impressive results at youth World Cup and and, um, other youth tournament levels. And a number of, I think the majority even of Japan's uh, players that they took to the Asian Cup were under the age of 25 and only one of them, Captain Saki Kumagai, had over 100 caps. So Japan are already in the throes of this generational change. They're already using tournaments like this Asian Cup to throw these young players into the deep end and see if they can swim. So I think Japan uh, form like it's it's almost like do you know Animorphs the, uh, the 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 book about the the people who can transform into animals and mm-hmm. they on the front cover of those books and they had like the the four or five different stages of that transformation process. It's almost like China, Japan, and Australia are different different <laughs> stages of that Animorphs evolution. Australia are a little bit behind Japan and Japan are a little bit behind China. Um, but that's, I mean, that's great. And that's the whole, the whole, um, what's what's so wonderful about being in a global game is that we can look to examples that are happening elsewhere in the world and learn things. And I think we're, we're learning a lot from China and from Japan and also from South Korea, you know, South Korea have been threatening to have a, a, a major tournament run like this for a good couple of years now. And they are being led by, I think they're maybe a little bit further behind us in terms of their process on this animal scale of evolution um, because they are still largely held together by a, a very experienced group of core players. Ji Soyun, for example, she scored, I think, all but one or two of South Korea's goals over the course of the entire Asian Cup. Uh, one of the most experienced Asian players in the history of the game. Um, Sam Kerr's teammate at Chelsea. That probably wasn't a really fun uh, reuniting moment, um, but they they've shown that they are they are they are a force to be reckoned with now. That they have a head coach in Colin Bell who is very experienced in Europe and is able to embed um, the kinds of foundations of style and structure that. 
players who maybe don't have the same structural advantages as South Korean players, as opposed to Japan, China and Australia in terms of resourcing, in terms of access to club competition, all Mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. Um, but is still able to utilize the players that he has and work them into a team that is able to get results. Uh, so I think their yeah their their Asian Cup tournament was was special, um, and hopefully it is going to kickstart the growth of women's football in South Korea because th- there have been so many moments like this where a national team performs fantastically on the world stage but their home federations don't capitalise. They don't do anything about it. They, they, they don't use the momentum or the energy or the attention to really f- sort of flood that interest down into the rest of the community. And so hopefully this is that moment for South Korea in the same way that hopefully next year's Women's World Cup is going to be that for Australia. And with, you know, we talked about that, that there are, there are not just two now, but four nations that at least can have the ambition to be really, really successful in the women's game internationally from the region. I think so often the comparisons are brought into the question to the men's game in a way to maybe drag the women's game down instead of contrasting the two and using that to highlight things that are better or more interesting or more exciting about the women's game. And we Mm -hmm. see in men's football that is increasingly dominated by these rich European nations. Do you think having these four in Asia or Asia Oceania, having those spur each other on, compete with each other on the continental level as well, can help avoid that same sort of domination of the European game on the women's side? Well, they're pushing each other. You've obviously got the US and you've got Canada on the other side of the world as well. Do we have more of a chance, more hope of a really competitive global game in the women's game? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. Um, I think ultimately, unfortunately, like everything, it comes down to money. And one of the big reasons why we've seen the emergence of Europe on the women's international stage over the past five to six years is not only have the European federations come to the the women's development table, but they've also come to the women's club table. And when Mm. it comes to club football, considering the increasingly important role that it's playing in the calendars of women players, club football will always be more dominant and better resourced and have more of a culture in Europe than it will in most other nations in the world, most other confederations in the world, most other continents in the world, sorry. So in that sense, I do feel like we are heading down the men's road and we're already starting to see major, even at club level, major tournaments, major leagues being mirrors of their men's equivalents. Spain is a good example. Italy, France, you know, these are are women's leagues that are slowly going down exactly the same road as what the men's game has paved for them because those are the clubs that can afford to invest in women's programs and in women's teams and in buying the best women players, even though it's couch cushions compared to what the no couch cushion coins compared to what the men's game receives and what male players receive, but that's largely what dictates it. And so I think by virtue of that, by virtue of how um, how 
uh, lopsided the women's club game is becoming, favouring heavily European nations the and the sort of the, the one sport cultures that are often um, in Europe as opposed to Australia, for example, where we have 100 different sports that are all competing for the same space. Uh, that I think is going to be the, the biggest determinant of how national teams ultimately progress because those are the pools that you draw from. You know, those are the player pools that national team head coaches need to, to find their crop from. Uh, Japan have been really proactive in that space, though. They uh, they started their fully professional, full-time WE League um, last year, and that is the first fully professional women's league in the, in the entire Confederation of Asia. Um, but, again, it, it's not just perhaps the availability of the league. It's also about culture. It's about uptake. It's about... Um, whether this league can actually sort of set, set its roots into Japan more widely and whether mm-hmm. that league and those pathways can filter down and create more opportunities for young players, emerging players and players at grassroots level. Um, so that's, I think, one of the the big things. I, I would like to think, obviously, as a biased uh, Australian, as a biased Asian Football Confederation member, that we are going to pose uh, good challenges to emerging European nations and to now dominant European nations. But all the facts and all the trends and all the finances point to Europe ultimately becoming a mirror of the men's game, becoming the most dominant confederation in women's international football. And to be honest, like, good on them because you're doing the work, you're investing, you're setting up competition structures, you're setting up leagues, you're making sure that women have fully professional contracts at fully professional clubs and that they have every, well, not every, but that they are being given more opportunities in that confederation than anywhere else in the world. So if that means that Europe becomes the next big global powerhouse confederation in the women's international game, then that's just how it is and the rest of us are going to have to learn from it. (laughs) Well, let's hope Australia and co get their act together because I think the the whole sport and especially the World Cup, um, not just the one around the corner, is a lot more colourful when we have, you know, competitive teams from all over the world. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the great benefits of the next year's Women's World Cup being expanded as well to 32 teams. You know, it's, it gives it gives nations like the Philippines, it gives nations like uh, Vietnam, it gives nations in the OFC, it gives nations in Africa, it gives, it gives all of these other nations all of a sudden another opportunity to, to get the visibility, to get the exposure, to get the funding, to, to have that moment to kickstart something. Uh, we've seen it happen in past Women's World Cups as well. Thailand is a good example of that when they won their first ever World Cup game of the whole nation of either men or women in 2015. And, you know, that spurned them on and Thailand have become one of the most dominant nations in Southeast Asian football in any respect. So it, it has these flow-on effects, but I think that, you know, we always have to um, qualify that by saying it needs to be regulated that there needs to be ring-fenced funding for women's football, that qualifying for a World Cup 
the funding and the um, all the support that you get from that needs to be dedicated to women's programs, to women players, to women coaches, and not just given to federations to do whatever they want to do with it. Because we've seen in the past that it just gets distributed to the men's team. But it's uh, again like this is uh, women's football is the it is the space in all of world sport that has the biggest growth potential. It is the biggest game it is the biggest population it is the 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 widest translated like it is the it's called the world game for a reason and having excluded half the world for the past hundred years we have a lot of catching up to do but that's so exciting because there is so much space left to explore there are so many things that we can do differently there are so many things that we can use the men's game as a model for and find alternative possibilities to imagine different futures for ourselves and to potentially avoid some of the pitfalls that men's football has had to fall in in order to learn and to get to where it is now. So that's what's that's why that's why I love working in this space because there it, there is still so much left to do. There is so much left to explore. There are so many questions to be asked and there are so many stories that are yet to be told in this space and come this women's asian cup we're going to see more teams more players more opportunities and more possibilities open up not just for these nations or for the players but for the women's game and for football more generally and that's it's really exciting to be part of sam i think that's a great place to end thank you so much for joining us and good luck i'm sure we'll speak before then but if not, good luck for the World Cup next year. Thank you so much. I hope to see you all listening. I hope to see you all down here in Australia New Zealand. We're a fabulous place. Even if we don't do very well in the Women's World Cup, we have a really <laughs> fun, really beautiful country and we want to share it with you. So please, a roadie depending, fingers crossed, you're all able to get down here and we're able to celebrate regardless of who wins. Sam, thanks a lot.